0: listening to Inclusive AF with Jackie Clayton and Katie Van Horn.
1: Hi, Jackie. Hi, Katie. How you doing? You know, um, today's not a great day because not. we just got the news in Texas. Um, but we will carry on, and we will um,
0: we'll get this fixed. But um, how are you? I'm so stressed out, like there's already enough reasons not where Texas isn't great. Now, sometimes there are some things that you're like, but you know, you can say, but we don't have income tax, right? Or you could say, but we don't have, you know, pick it. But this time is it's just a scary time. It's a scary time right now. And so Just like we've been feeling for the past four plus years, I'm feeling a little unsteady. Ultimately, the small Jackie is feeling okay, you know, everything's great. The big, like Jackie, like in the bigger scheme of things, a little frustrated. That's the word I'll use today. Frustrated. Okay. I'm Um, going through the stages of mourning
1: yeah I don't know where oh, well, frustrated goes for reals but, yeah for reals yeah but I want us to not be frustrated and, and here's why oh by the way this is the inclusive AF podcast um and we're very glad <laughs> She's that you're Katie, all Katie
0: I'm Jackie yes this is like episode number 44 or 45.
1: so one day we'll get it one day we'll get it it'll work <laughs> out perfectly but we have the absolute honor of having Dr Aisha Corey with us today Um, and she has got a story to tell and we're very excited to have her. So, uh, Dr. Corey, I'd love to turn it over to you to share a little bit about yourself and then we'll, we'll dig in on the story.
2: Thank you, Katie and Jackie. It's awesome to be on inclusive AF. (laughs) (laughs) I, um, I do have a story to tell. Um, and this is around now. Oh, a one-year anniversary of, um, of my story and how um, Jackie and I actually got connected um, through some social media activism. Um, I am an internist, a physician, um, an educator, and a long-term advocate, and I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, was recruited from Atlanta uh, for my work with Kaiser Permanente to help found. Um, the Kaiser Permanente Bernard J. Tyson School of Medicine as a founding faculty member. And I was very excited for that position. Uh, Bernard Tyson is someone who is an inspiration and has done a lot of work in this area of um, racial equity. And the school seemed very much poised to honor him as as, uh, one of the staunch supporters of Kaiser having its own medical school Um, but also so many of the values that I hold dear myself, um, eliminating patient disparities, um, teaching students to become change agents, teaching students to become advocates. And so on August 28th, 2020, when I was asked, um, as a number of us who are instructors were asked to discuss race and gender health disparities, I thought nothing of it, um, But as the only Black uh, woman physician um, who grew up in America and had the opportunity to teach this class, I know my my conversation with my students was different because it was reflective of my story as a Black woman who grew up in America. And within nine hours of that discussion, I found myself suspended. Um, And it was shocking to me. Um, we, we kind of come through oftentimes and say, oh, you know, racism in America, this is not surprising. This surprised me um, because I thought that I was in a place that would allow me to tell my story. But what was worse was that they couldn't tell me why I was suspended. They just said that there was a complaint. I don't know who made the complaint. I don't know what the complaint said. I never went through a process, you know, when you're in faculty, typically you will go through some kind of um, process where your um, peers and leadership will will kind of do an investigation and you'll have the opportunity to speak and, and that did not happen. Um, and then in January, I found myself dismissed from the organization and that they did not renew my contract. And prior to August um, of last year, I was expecting to receive a promotion. And so it was just a really devastating moment. It's devastating on so many.
0: It's it's shocking. It's shocking. For a number of reasons that you had already mentioned, knowing that this was coming behind as a founding in kind of an honor to someone who pushed that forward, knowing that you're a black woman, physician, knowing the climate. That's what makes it shocking. And one thing that's really important, really quick, because this is not it's not about me, but it's one of those things where I think when people hear disparities or being treated differently, they feel they 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 think about it as like the way we're treated at Macy's or being followed around a store or um, oh. You might be put in handcuffs when you get pulled over for a ticket, right? But we're, that's not what happens with racial disparities within medicine. It literally kills people. And but- you, for, for me as a black woman, I'm looking for black doctors to know that that, because those things don't happen, pace and point. And I know if any of our regular listeners have heard the story, When the doctor told me that I had high blood pressure and I said something, if I have high blood pressure and then later found out that, yes.
1: You're breaking up a little
0: bit. It says it's unstable. Okay. We'll edit that part. I might have to call in because it's been saying unstable all day.
1: Okay. What do you want to do?
0: Let me call in. Okay. I'll jump back okay. to this, go for okay. it. And I'll call in on the other part.
1: So uh, I, I know Jackie will be rejoining us in just a moment, but I want to, I want to understand a little bit more about the conversation mm-hmm. and, you know, in what you're comfortable sharing with obviously, yes, I think, you know, the conversation would have been different because of your lived experience, because of what, um, you have gone through yourself just in getting medical um, care throughout the years. So tell me, what do you think was different or why do you think this was more challenging or was whatever
2: it was for folks? You know, I really don't know. I, I'm very grateful. Um, you know, initially when I was suspended and I was told there would be an investigation, um, I was silent. I was told that um, I couldn't um, speak with anyone at the school. I was very much removed from the community in in every aspect. And um, it it took me a couple of months to realize, oh, I am not going to be heard in the way that I think I'm going to be heard. I'm not going to be heard as a member of this community. Um, and, And so ultimately my choice to tell my story online um, was to not be um, a co-conspirator in my own trauma. Um, I only had maybe 20 Twitter followers at the time. Twitter was not even uh, a, a platform that I used regularly. And so in my going public and telling my side of the story, it started conversations within the school and ultimately, uh, the s- students from the school um, started a Students of KP Twitter account uh, and eventually released a letter to the public that says, you know, we the students who were in this class um, appreciated that conversation, um, did not feel that we were, un- we were unsafe and we would like Dr. Curry to be back. So I, I don't know what happened.
3: And, and, I, still I think it, and I still don't
2: know. And I still don't know. And I try not to dwell on who said what to whom, why was this misinterpreted, how did it get this far? Um, because at the end of the day, there was ample opportunity for leadership to step forward, treat me as a valued member of the community, um, and have a dialogue and conversation with me. And that did not happen. No. So
1: there still has not been any other than the letter that you received saying we are not renewing your contract. Have you heard anything else from the school or is there, I mean, I know obviously that we have, there's next steps that are happening, but has there been a
2: conversation? Um, I, I have not spoken to anyone, any leadership at the school. And that's one of the things that I've been asking for since October. I asked for a restorative justice process. I have now filed uh, a lawsuit um, for race and gender discrimination. But initially what I wanted was a restorative justice process. I knew how damaging this was for me. I could imagine how damaging this was for my students, for, was for other faculty. And I wanted a way for us to, as a community, be made whole. And my response in how to get us back on track, was a restorative justice process. And I made that recommendation and there was no response to that. I know
3: for Katie, like, especially from an HR perspective, this sounds obscene, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like, wait, what was the process? Like, did you go, you know, we think about normal, I say normal, not normal, but, standard HR practices when anything happens in that way, or someone coming, having a conversation, explaining it, having you sign, you know, there's a lot of different ways it can go. And then the other part, like my heart breaks for you, but it really breaks for all of us because you made that um, leap of becoming faculty and doing that, which is an extra burden for 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 people. Um, and we had an opportunity of of develop people that are not going to be able to flourish under your um, teaching and have that to make a difference. And you're the only black woman there that was teaching.
1: And so, you know, well, I think there's a that piece. It's the, you know, it's the, you know, if you can see it, you can be at peace. That's one factor. But then I think there's also mm-hmm. the factor of when a conversation occurs and the response is what occurred, there's also the, okay, so we absolutely won't speak up ever. And that's the message that the, mm-hmm. all of those students got and, And also that conversations about inequities in medicine is not okay to have. Like that makes my stomach hurt. Like that is,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: it's just, that's horrible. My concern, um, definitely there's that whole academic freedom piece, right? So uh, first of all, we live in the United States, so I should, right. <laughs> you know, we're, we're founded on principles of free speech. Um, right. But secondly, there, there is supposed to be an academic freedom piece because we know um, centers of academia are supposed to be thought-provoking, are supposed to, especially in medical school, um, encourage critical thinking and assessment. Uh, we can't do that if we can't have you know, conversations and sometimes difficult conversations. Um, I am really proud of the conversation I I had. My students were very engaged. I got um, several emails after class just thanking me for the class, um, saying that it was thought provoking um, and and knowing that, you know, aspects of the class were going to stick with them. And and that's all very encouraging because as as an educator, that's what you want. You want to um, make someone look at themselves and their own beliefs. But ultimately when we're talking about medical education, what we're doing is hopes it, it is a hope to improve patient care, right? I want students who I've had the privilege to teach to see their patients as human, to see their patients as people living a very human experience and be there to listen to their stories not make assumptions and allow the people who they see to feel safe and heard and cared for. And I know myself included, many women, black women who look like me, we go into the healthcare system and part of our brain is focused on, am I being treated correct? Is this okay? Is what they're doing right for me? And we can't even focus on our own healing because we know that healthcare systems have been dangerous places for us. Whether it's giving birth to a baby, whether it's getting a diagnosis of high blood pressure or breast cancer, healthcare systems can be a dangerous place for us.
3: And what I'm especially emotional about it after what happened this week with um, Elijah McCain, right? Elijah McCain, 23-year-old young black man who was walking home who ended up, you know, being handcuffed. Someone called because he, some, he had a ski mask on and then he was being handcuffed and then he was put in um, a chokehold and then given ketamine and later died at the hospital. And then the um, coroner says, oh, it could have been natural causes. And I think that they had a heart, you know, like it just keeps perpetuating and like things like situations like that. When you think about all of the different controls, when things happen to us like that. And then knowing that there are doctors that aren't getting the message or it discourages people who look like us going into that field, if they feel like they're gonna be shot down or going into education or going into, you know, different things and, and it hurts. And especially because of the reach of cognitive Permanente, <laughs> the reach. It's, this is a, you know, this is a huge, it's, it's it's a huge organization and it, it just hurt.
2: It does. I had um, always wanted to work for Kaiser Permanente. I was a teenager, worked like a sandwich shop like many of us do. I um, would help, help cater box lunches for them and deliver them to their administrative offices here in Atlanta uh, telling, you know, the administrative assistants, I'm going to come work for you guys one day. Um, it was, it, it was my goal and I achieved that goal. And I work with them for, I worked for them for over a decade, um, before even taking on the new role of, um, of a founding physician. And it's because I believed in their values, right? I, I never thought, um, that there would be a place where I would not consider call myself a, a permanent physician. They are a large multi-state organization, and now they have a medical school. Um, and you know, part of the reason that we have so many medical schools, one, we need to train them, but, but each school has its own philosophy and branding, and they send out students into the world to take care of our communities. Um, and as, as patients, you know, we don't necessarily look into all that right? You just want to go to the doctor and be seen and heard and cared for. Um, but I can say that I know colleagues who their education was dissimilar to mine, and especially on aspects of race or gender health issues. Um, there, there are gaps. There are gaps. And we cannot, we as, as, as healthcare providers cannot Um, affect the system for the the better, if we can't have the conversation about the gaps in our education, the gaps in our training, and what we're perpetuating when we're stepping into the office every day.
1: So I want to ask you, so obviously it's been, you said, you know, you worked there for 10 years, and is there anything in the medical school, I know that you, obviously this was one of the things they were trying to roll out, but had you previously had any type of gender and race education about those disparities or was this something that was brand
2: new that had never been done before?
1: Cause well, we know I this is been an issue for a while.
2: Yeah, I attended Morehouse School of Medicine. So, okay. um, <laughs> and, and so it is designed in part um, to educate uh, minoritized people to be of service and to go out into communities. And um, so much in the tradition of Howard University and Meharry, um, Morehouse School of Medicine was established for that. And so that was very much a part of my curriculum. This is, I grew up in Atlanta. I grew up in, you know, the hub of the civil rights movement. Um, these are not conversations that are unknown to me. Um, but as you come out into the world uh, with your fresh, freshly pressed white coat and you start interacting with you know, other providers, people from different schools backgrounds, when you network all over the country, you you see you see the differences in the education. Um, there has been a, a slow movement in medicine to to address this. So um, conversations about this sh- are supposed to be part of the medical education. Um, but those there these are not prescriptive um, instructions. So that's left to. Um, the institution as to what degree these things are going to be addressed. But it's in part why we have the issues that we have. Absolutely.
3: I think we've gotten so much insight because of the results of COVID and some of Mm -hmm. like in the past couple of years where a Zoom has been left on and hearing professors, whether it be in the medical and other, in, in law schools, we've heard conversations. And for some people, you know, the feedback is no, not this person. Like you don't think this person has a belief system and you wouldn't know. And if you're a a young new student, you're looking to this person as your guide or or mentor, pushing back could mean not passing, which could mean not fulfilling that goal. I mean, you talk about, you know, a power, like the power construct and being afraid of, of speaking out about things like this. And then I'm, I, and I, I get fresh I'm so pissed off about it, and I'm pissed off because somebody asked me to do it right. in the first place, right? right and so that I mean there's just there's a lot of there's a lot of pissed off levels in this whole conversation, just in the fact that and you're like a local daughter. <laughs> You're raised there. You went to more like just as a citizen.
2: And to be clear, back to the
3: community, yeah.
2: And to be clear, um, the the there there is a Kaiser Permanente in Georgia, and that's where I worked for Correct. over ten years. Um, but the school itself is in uh, Southern California, in Pasadena. Yeah. And so I left Atlanta um, to to be part of their faculty.
3: But I mean, you're like a native daughter of Kaiser Permanente. That's oh, a fair. long time.
2: Yeah. You know, and so out of residency. Absolutely.
3: Yeah. So that, that is, that's the thing that is, is, you know, you should be being celebrated. Mm. Right. And like, look at what you've been able to, to do. And it's unfortunate and this is what's going to happen. And you know, what's going to happen. I know what's going to happen. The same students that were like, you know, you shouldn't have done this, are gonna go on to do great things, and they're not gonna make that same mistake, and they're gonna remember this and the impact, right? And we are and we might, we may not, we'll never know, right? We won't have that, be able to track that as your students because of the situation, it's overshadowed over something else. Um, and I, I have to look at, I hope that that is a catalyst of people, especially the students that were there that received the message It's almost like, you know, you think about, you know, you're sometimes you're there for a a lifetime. Sometimes you're there for a season or different things like I have to feel like you were putting those those students that were able to receive that message like I just feel like that was on purpose, like you were there for that purpose and it sucks what's going on right now. And we won't be able to connect the dots until it happens, but Something put that on my heart to say that to you. Like, I just know that at the end, at some point we'll know that there was no, at least one person there. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but that's what I think about. Like, if it could save, if it turned around one person, he's going to save one person's life. It's worth it. We might not know, but I just feel confident that you were put there, that you were put there on purpose,
2: with those students, on purpose. There are so. coincidences, you know. I hope so. I hope so. They just um, aren't. I'm I'm grateful for the the response online has been tremendous. I um, it's connected me with with people from all over the country, the world. Um, you know, I get messages that folks are having conversations, they're having hard conversations, they're having these conversations within their departments with their students. Um, and these, you know, are is across the board in healthcare. And, um, you know, I know that um, this, my story has been used as a case study at women's health conferences. So uh, definitely a broader reach than I could have had with, you know, my small group of eight students that were, I had the conversation with. Um, and I, I, to your point, you're right. I, I won't know what that ripple effect is. Um, what I do know is that I will not be silent. I've received too many messages, heard so many more stories similar to mine of people being pushed out, demoted, um, removed, forced to live. Deli- work in a hostile environment um, for just being who they are. And none of us who go into medicine deserve that. Um, you know, we kind of paid our dues. We've done our chops. We just want to see patients. We just want to educate students. We just want to do our research. And as long as you are not harming anyone, <laughs> you should be able to do that and thrive in your careers without your race or your gender <laughs> Um, being viewed in a way that your career is lynched. Oof.
1: Yeah. I...
0: Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about, and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah! I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We, we out.
1: I think that the, the question that you know comes to mind, and I think this is something that our listeners um, would want to hear and would want to understand a little bit more about, are some of those disparities, some of those things that, you know, I know we have anecdotal stories and, you know, Jackie has shared, uh, you know, stories that, that she has experienced herself on this podcast, you know, with our listeners, but can you share a little bit about some of those disparities that we know data, you know, that is, you know, we, we know this is occurring. We know this is happening. Can you share a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, but I, what what I've learned, especially um, advocating on issues of health, is that the anecdotal stories make the personal, right? So, you know, we we've learned that Black women uh, are at risk of death um, around pregnancy many times more than other women, and that is regardless of social status, education, wealth. And Serena Williams is the excellent example of that, right? Um, but when I shared with my students that the joy of hearing that one of my girlfriends is pregnant and going to bring a life into the world is overcast by my absolute fear and dread that she will make it out of the hospital when she goes into the liver. This real for me. You know, one of my very good friends right now is pregnant due next month. And I'm terrified. And it should be the part of the month that I'm making fun of her for having to waddle. <laughs> right. You know, for, for not being able to get in her car <laughs> mm-hmm. smoothly, right? This should be that time where we're making memories of her being late stage in her pregnancy, but that's removed from us. Um, We see what happened with COVID and we know that there's this disproportionate death, hospitalizations, intubations. And it comes down to the experience of those of us who are racialized in this country and we know that, and there is tons of data out there when you compare native Africans to those of us living in in um, countries where there's slavery, where there was slavery. There has an effect. So I don't know anymore that the statistics work. I, I feel that people have kind of they close their ears, but I know that stories do work, um, and it's why those of us in healthcare, those of us who want to stand in for our health also have to vote in a way that promotes the health of all of us. And Like you started the show today, we see what happens in Texas. And that decision is gonna affect the health and disproportionately those who are poor and who are racialized as black and brown. right? And that could be a death sentence for someone because of who they're perceived to be. And you you,
3: you have, and it, it's Texas, right? They have a vigilante law that if you suspect that somebody is going to have an abortion, that you're allowed to do to sue that person. And you think about the fact that, oh, I saw a guy walking down the street. I'm suspicious. I think that person might have done something and they end up dead when they went to the grocery store to get a soda for their brother. What do you think is going to happen in the, when you empower citizens to sue because they think somebody might be, you know, getting an abortion or doing something, you know, but they, like, I don't see how this is going to, what's going to happen. This could happen in other places. It's archaic.
1: Well, I I think that's the piece. And if you've seen any of the document, the dissent documents from the other justices, basically that's exactly what they're saying, is this is now opening up a can of worms for every other state to use this kind of loophole legislation to criminalize abortions. And it just to your point, Dr. Corey, like it is the, the, how do we get back or how do we get to a place where that is no longer an issue that people can go to a doctor and know that they're safe or your friend can go into the hospital to have her baby and you know, it's going to be okay. And the very thing that needs to be done is education and awareness. And that's being shut down too.
3: I feel like we have to look, one of the things that um, my uh, we, we were going to put TJ in, it was um, Black Men with White Coats It's one of the examples, which is an organization for young Black men to go into the med- medical field, um, or different organizations, or the, the program in the past year that was like, this is what a doctor looks like, mm-hmm. just like we've done that push within STEM is going to be so important. Like, I don't, I, when I, we have these conversations, and part of it that we have the conversation, we know that you're white, Katie, I'm black, and we don't have the same background. But I remember thinking, like my mom was saying to me, like, you can be anything that you want to be. And I remember thinking, but I'll never be a doctor. I can't be a lawyer. I won't be president. And I, be- I believe that is true. As much as I believe that the sky is blue, as much as I believe that, you know, ice cream is the best dessert on the planet. As it is that real to me. And I, so when people don't understand how it's how important it is to have a Dr. Corey there just to be there. Also understanding of, of promoting and giving people pathways to be able to go to school. And like we're saying is putting the right people in place so that when they do go for that education, they don't have, because you know, my kids go to an HBCU. Part of the reason that we did that was so that they could just go. Like, I don't think, you know, this whole podcast, all 44 or 45 or whatever episodes it is, is really has been one long 50 minute 50 our soapbox. However, I hate the way the media portrays it. Oh, there's racial disparities in healthcare. No, it's not, that's not what this is. It is taking away the opportunity, not making it right to have the right people in place, not allowing people to be successful. And then when you go, you've already been held back. And then when you go to get the care, you are dying from basic, simple things.
2: And that's why it's important for us to see, you know, racism is, is beyond just an individual failing, right?
3: Exactly. Are,
2: these are systems that place that must be changed, that must be changed because in healthcare, lives are literally dependent on them. Um, for me, some of the most devastating messages I've received um, is, is, you know, young people telling me this was confirmation for them why they should not go into healthcare. Because they don't want to have to deal with this. And we live in a country, and I don't know what the most recent census data is, but, you know, we are historically been about 12, 13% of the population. Um, But, you know, Black physicians only make up 5 to 6% of the physician workforce. And so the likelihood that you are going to see someone who looks like you, understands who you are culturally, understands the stressors that are in your life is low. Um, and this is not one of those spaces where, um, you know, folks who are oppressed can make the change on their own, right? That's right. It has to come from a system who is willing to look at patients regardless of their skin tone and know that they're giving them the respect that they deserve and the care that they deserve.
1: Well, and I think it's also, Yes. It's also the, just asking that one more question or, or, or taking a few more minutes. And I think that's some of the lessons that we are hearing is, you know, because there are perceptions of, oh, well, they have a higher pain threshold. If they are, um, you know, black women have a higher pain threshold and some of these other just ridiculous statements Mm -hmm. that have become the rule of medicine or the, like, thought to be true in medicine, people make assumptions and don't ask those additional questions or don't get clarity or don't say, let me do one more test, or let me check one more thing, which is, I mean, it's leading truly to people dying and more, you know, more people dying that are people of color because they aren't getting the questions asked. They aren't getting the respect that they, they deserve and need. And so it just, it is, it's very, very hard to think about how do we fix this? And to your point, it, it isn't going to be fixed by folks saying, hey, this happened to me. It's also, it is, all of us need to be involved in this conversation. And so you speaking up in that room with those students and the ripple effect and the impact that you're making now, hopefully will lead to change and will lead to conversations and will continue to lead to how do we do this differently and better in the future? Um, so the the question I have, um, or the kind of the next piece, because you were asked to do this, and the other, like your peer teachers, have you heard from other folks that also had these conversations? There were that were white
2: about the conversations that they had. Um, no. No, because, you know, again, I was removed within nine hours. And so there was no, um, and told explicitly, you know, you cannot call and contact. So there was no, hey, how did that class go um, uh, with anyone who was white? Has right? that come out
1: at all, or have any other teachers spoken out about, you know, I had this conversation? About the specifics
2: in the classroom? Uh, not in to their my conversations.
1: Yeah, not to my knowledge. Okay. I just would be curious, you know, was this, you know, were there issues of just folks not wanting to have that conversation, period?
2: Mm-hmm. Am I, I the only person my, who did the assignment? <laughs> oh,
1: or yes, yeah, were you the only person who actually did what you were told? Um, yes, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so what what is the next step for for folks that are in a position where, They are contemplating do I go to medical school or what do I do when I'm you know approaching my own medical care? What should people of color be thinking about? And and I myself, you know, as a white woman, what should I be thinking about as I go about my day and kind of am thinking about this stuff?
2: Sure. I I think one, these are conversations that have to be had, right? And I think if medicine is at a place in part because of the protests. We had last summer that there is a willingness to listen, and we, we saw that in the response um, to the JAMA podcast, where um, someone made the very unfortunate uh, statement that no physician is racist. Um, oh yes, <laughs> um, okay. So there was there was a um, a, a large public outcry um, from that, and and there was change in in how um, that JAMA podcast. Are produced um, as as I understand it. Um, So, if we're going to make a change, we have to know that patients want this change, that people care. Nothing is going to change without public pressure. Um, So, it is about having the conversation with your doctor, right? And if you are not in a place where you're comfortable to have real, honest conversations, that may not be the doctor for you because that interaction is often extraordinarily vulnerable. And if you can't trust them to have a conversation about medical education, how can you trust them to have a conversation about something that's intimately happening to you? So I think that kind of gut feeling that tells us, you know, I'm okay having this conversation um, is, is something to trust. Um, word of mouth is very important when you're finding a doctor who works for you. Um, but otherwise, really getting involved into what medicine as a culture, what the AMA as an organization, what all of these national organizations are, are putting out there, that has to become part of the discussion at the dinner table.
1: Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I think you know, for I, I myself, I have friends in law enforcement, or or they have spouses in law enforcement, and one of the questions I've asked quite a few of them is, have you had any type of um, de-escalation training mm-hmm. in some of the things that occurred, you know, in the last eighteen months? And for the most part, the answer's been no, and and it's so unfortunate because it is the, those are the questions we need to be asking. Where is the de-escalation training? Where are, you know, where are, and to your point, you know, if you're sitting in a doctor's office and you don't know, you don't, you haven't gotten all your answers or all your questions answered, or you don't know exactly what's going on. And, and it is, you know, as Jackie mentioned, kind of that, that power dynamic too, that I think for so many of us, we go in the doctor's office and whatever the doctor says is gospel. And Mm -hmm. so have, you know, pushing back and asking more questions and saying, I don't understand, or I need more information and being able to ask those questions I think is critical. And, and I, I myself recently had a situation where I walked out of a doctor's office. I said, clearly this isn't working for us. I'll go find someone else. And, you know, I'm fortunate enough that I have insurance that I can do that. Mm -hmm. But I think that's the other piece as well is, how do we make sure that, you know, folks feel that they have that power to mm-hmm. be able to say, no, I need more time. I need more questions answered, or I need an, an additional test or what tests do what else, what other tests should I have?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Which I just don't, I don't know that people are comfortable with and being comfortable with that is critical.
2: And I think that's the first step, I, it's, it's that comfort, right? And it, it may not be that everything gets addressed in that one visit, maybe it'll take two visits, maybe it'll take five visits. Um, but if you are already in a place where you don't feel like you're being heard or, or something is just making you feel like, mm, I don't know that I could ask this question, that is likely not the right place for you. Um, you know, when you go into a, that space, you have to feel safe and you have to feel like you can be heard. Um, it, it's, it's part of our job as physicians to, to help you feel comfortable. But if that's not the case, you, it is very well within your ability to protect yourself, to, to remove yourself from that situation, right? Um, the unfortunate part is when we get to hospitalizations. And I know stories of uh, patients and families who have advocated for themselves and then they found you know security being called. Um, When we hear the story of um, Dr. Danielson out in Seattle at Children's and that occurring. Um, And I can't imagine a more devastating space for that to occur. Um, But we're only going to get change if part of these stories become mainstream, because no one should be with their child advocating, hurting, feeling vulnerable, and then Suddenly, security is there because they're deemed a threat, and they did find, um, as I understand it, that predominantly security was called on whom—black and brown people.
1: Okay. Um, the way that we normally, Jackie, uh, the way that we normally end our episodes is by talking a little bit about kind of the the one thing that we want to make sure folks hear and and take away from the episode. Um, and so, Jackie, are you ready to do that? I don't even know. I don't even know. There's a million things. I'm going
3: right, I, I, to like say three to four things. Every time she says one thing, it's three to four things.
1: Oh. Um, I also feel like you have more things you want to ask. And so that's why I'm like, are we ready for this? Or are we still? <laughs> is there more? I
3: think part of it is going back, like... And I think I told you, like when when I when I was like was bleeding when I was pregnant, and I told the story at some event, and someone goes, "Did you ever think about the fact that you were black, that that could be why that happened?" Because it was somebody else who said it didn't make sense. And when I look back, it's it's hard. And so I think it goes back to, um, what the doctor said where it's like you have to if it doesn't feel right you're well within your right to leave. If you have the opportunity to get another opinion, get another opinion. But then also if if you find a doctor that you do feel safe and you are, you know, a black and brown person where you feel like you're being treated equitably to raise those people up so other people know that can support those people, I think is important.
2: Yeah, I um, mean, I think, I think even if it's a white woman going into her OB visit and saying, hey, I hear that Black women are four or five times more likely um, to die or have complications as a result of being pregnant in the United States. That is a shocking statistics. When you look at our health statistics compared to other countries who are economically, socially kind of along par, we are at the bottom. Mm but I, I, I would imagine that maybe if, if a white woman um, asked that question and her OB happened to also be white, that that question might be considered unexpected. And it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be if, if we continue to believe we are who we are as Americans, regardless of what's happened in the last four or five years. Right? Um, I, I think there are better examples of this when we look at education, especially uh, K through 12 education. Um, and I'm definitely not an expert, but just, you know, my own reading of, of, of stories is, you know, how is it um, tax tax uh, or, or zip codes near each other? One school has all these resources and the next school down the street does not. Because as a society, no one benefits if, one group of people is continually suppressed. That benefits one. We do not get to move forward when that is the case. And Health I, is part I, of that moving forward. It, ab- it absolutely is part of that.
3: And I think it's just important to... Again, give people those opportunities and look for opportunities to help. And it's just like when you know a white man says, "Oh, nobody he- wants to hear from a middle-aged white man about diversity." I'm like, "Yeah, absolutely, they do, actually." Yeah. And it's the same thing here. Where I'm sure it, other middle-aged
2: act. white men may want to hear from middle-aged white men. I I find it. Um, I I feel such a sense of relief when I am as as kind of the black person in the room i'm not the one leading the discussion Mm -hmm. but you know a a white person leading a discussion who has a sincere interest who you know has done the work and part Mm -hmm. of doing the work is not just you know reading the latest tagline but But also doing the introspective work and now living a life that he's he or she um is leading what this looks like by example What does anti-racism look like by example? I am relieved when I see that. And it actually gives me hope. Um, But when people are unwilling to have the conversation, when it's such a taboo topic, where you cannot even use the word racism, when you can't use the words white supremacy, when we can't call it what it is, we won't change it. When we won't, when we will not identify systems that are hurting us as a whole, hurting us as a whole we will not be able to move forward. We will definitely be putting a note
1: into this episode of what white women can do because I'm writing down. um, I'm going to ask that question the next time I go see my OBGYN. Um, But I also think what you just said is such a critical statement of this isn't just impacting black and brown people. It's impacting all of us none of us is okay when these types of things are happening. None of us is whole. This is impacting all of us. And, this, and I think that's also some of the disconnect that occurs is it's, oh, that's over there. Mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about it because that's over there or that's that doctor over there for those people, mm-hmm. not my doctor. And it is like that. I think it's just indicative of the medical professional as a human that they aren't taking, like, I mean, I I think that anyone who isn't educating themselves on things that are impacting their industry, their field, you do question and go, okay, well, wait a minute. Why are you not digging in on this? Or why, like to your, to your point, the statistics, the data is there. Why isn't this something that you're investigating or looking into? If you are an OBGYN, do you know this information? And are you what are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? How are you educating yourself or educating your staff? Whatever, or, you know, at the hospitals that you have, you know, privileges, are you talking about it to your peers? And, and it's things like that, that I, I agree, it's going to, that will change the conversation and that will be, that will be where we will see change mm-hmm. because we know that voices are heard differently. And that's something that Jackie and I talk about all the time. There are conversations that I cannot have and shouldn't have. There are conversations that she can't have and shouldn't have. Like there are different, you know, and a white man can say things that neither of us can say, and we need them to say those things and ask those questions and be that advocate. So I think
2: it's just, it's really critical. Um, I I think what's important when we talk about any disparities you see in health, whether we're talking about. Um, lesbian women who are predisposed um, to higher rates of cervical cancer, whether we are talking about Black maternal health, we have to recognize this is not about those individuals' bodies. There is nothing inherently wrong with a lesbian woman's body. There is nothing inherently wrong with a Black woman's body. But what is a problem is the systems that are in place that make it such that it's hard to survive in this country because you are seen or because of how you identify. Okay, I, I, I'm literally, I'm, I know that she's like, what a cluster. I, I, I know, I know. No, You're I, like,
3: I kind of, well, no,
1: I, I want to end on that because I think that is, there is yeah. nothing inherently wrong. It, the, the wrongness is when we are judging people because of the skin color or their lifestyle or whatever it might be. That's the issue. Um, Jackie that's, the issue. Was, exactly. that's the issue, yeah. Jackie, what's one thing? Oh, we're back to that.
0: Yes, I have ma'am. a one
3: thing.
1: One thing. Um, I would
3: say part of it is, is really to try to keep educating yourself on some of these issues, because when you're talking to your doctor, and you have symptoms of something, one of them is listen to your body intuitively if it doesn't feel right and you feel like something's wrong, continue on that path. But then also make sure that you, if you have the ability to go to a different doctor, go to a different doctor to get, the, get an opinion of one that makes sense so you can get to the end of it because there isn't anything different with our bodies right it does not like because I'm black I'm predisposed to have high blood pressure and diabetes those are like lifestyle there's lifestyle choices and different things that are going on that we are taught just as much as we're taught with different history in school that we're taught oh you're black so that means you get these things Mm -hmm. and it's not true and I think we we hear that as women and at some point we're going to have a full show where I'm going to be like where we talk about more of the women's issues and the things that we're not allowed to do because of whatever, even though we know there's health things that are going on, you know, as women and women of a certain age, which is a whole different which is a whole different show. So just try to educate and when you when you know better, do better. And when you find out, share the message with other people so that we're not in a vacuum. Because I think healthcare is so personal that you don't hear about some of the stories that you don't also hear about some of the solutions in case something comes up. So share when you do. How
1: about that for my five? I, one like, thing? I like that for your final. Mine is going to be, um, if you can't ask your medical professional questions that you want to know the answer to, who are you going to ask? And I know I'm totally misquoting you on that, but that is the gist like, you know, who is it you're going to ask about medical things or about your body. If you're not comfortable asking your doctor. And so like being comfortable with your doctor is such a critical thing for all of us and for them to know you over, you know, over time as well to know what are those things. And so that's my one thing, ask the questions. And if you're not comfortable, find a different provider, uh, Dr. Corey. What is your one thing? I know you just like dropped like a thousand awesome nuggets. A worth. million <laughs> this awesome is, things. This is what happens every time we try to like summarize it. And I'm like, it never quite works, but we it never want to do it. Anyway. Never.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, we live in an integrated society um, and the failing of one um, system can really affect and bring us all down. Uh, medical education is designed to prepare the workforce that is supposed to take care of all of us. And if we cannot tell our stories, what is that workforce going to look like? Mm. So I encourage people to share their stories. I encourage people to know my story, know the story of Dr. Princess Dena, know the story of Dr. Selesafo, know the story, know the story of Dr. Nyong'o in California, know the story of Dr. Danielson in Seattle. Um There's a lot of work that, to be done, um, but many hands make light work. And I hope to um, see us all advocating in some public health space that will bring the desired attention needed to, to make changes so that when you go to the doctor, you never have to be concerned about harm.
1: Thank you.: um... Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for being with us um, in this space. And, you know, I think this story is so important and it, it just is a, a good reminder. You know, we, we have these hard conversations, Jackie and I do. And one of the reasons why we wanted to start this podcast was to have conversations like this one that, you know, folks might not be comfortable having or folks might not um, be reaching out to have. And so thank you for sharing the space with us and and sharing your story because it's important and people need to know what is going on and needs, need to know what they can personally do to affect change. So this is Katie Van Horn. And this is Jackie Clayton. And uh, thank you, Dr. Corey, for joining us. This is the Inclusive AF podcast. Have a great day.